from Relay FM. This is Upgrade, episode 125. Today's show is brought to you by Encapsula, Smile, and Squarespace. My name is Mike Hurley. I am joined by Mr. Jason Snell. Good morning, Mr. Hurley. Good morning, Jason Snell. How are you today? Hello to everybody out there in podcast land where it may be mm. night, morning, daytime, the dead of night. I don't know. Anytime. I'm doing well. For us, it's Monday. And for me, it's Monday morning. For me, it's Monday evening. But for you, it yeah. could be anything. This is how we start our week. So we have some pretty huge follow-out to start off this week's show. We do. I uh, People don't realize, uh, if you were not listening to live, that we actually did about a two-plus-hour show last week. Mm-hmm. And we, <laughs> we decided it was too long. And so we cut the uh, Ask Upgrade segment last week. But there was a debate about whether we should cut that segment or our discussion of Chris Latner leaving Apple. Yep. Um, and, and we decided to keep Chris Latner's, uh, segment because we thought that that was worth talking about and it was very timely and we could replay some of those ask upgrade questions later. And, uh, we, in it, we, we really referred to strongly that people should listen to ATP episode 204, where they talked in detail about Chris Latner and LLVM and Swift and what this all, you know, what, what it all means from a developer perspective. So we, we were like, yes, it's very nice of us to refer to ATP. And then like the next day they dropped uh, their next episode, which includes a complete show wall to wall interview with Chris Latner. Mm-hmm. <laughs> yeah. As, uh, as Seth pointed <laughs> out that um, they, they use the weight of their three P upgrady win uh, to pull in a star well, like Chris. They're an award-winning podcast. Three I mean. time. Yeah. So yeah, it's a really great episode. Um, if you for any reason have not listened to it, uh, you should. I will give a disclaimer that it is very, very developer heavy. Um, like the show starts off and they were like trying to dumb things down and, and explain it to everyone, but that didn't last for very long. Um, and then they got su- super in the weeds. But I don't understand what they were talking about, but I really enjoyed listening to it. Is it was you know it's the idea of like they're, they're speaking very passionately about things and every now and then I can kind of grok what they're talking about but uh, yeah I really recommend it it was a it was a fun episode um, as you can imagine like there there isn't like a lot of like behind the curtain stuff um, but I think you can kind of get an idea from listening to Chris like yeah. kind of his motivations for wanting to move on like he clearly sounds like someone who needs to have new challenges and this just sounded like a big new challenge. But it also is that, you know, he was, yes, he was at Apple, but he's also at um, working on open source projects, right? So I, I kept thinking about, well, you know, wow, he's going into a lot of detail here. But as he, as, as he pointed out himself, the a lot of what Apple does on those projects is wide open, right? Yeah. I mean, those, yeah. are, those are open source projects. So they're not the super secret part of Apple. Um, that that Chris Latner was working on, and he did yes, he did very carefully steer around a couple of of I think levels of detail that would have pr- been inappropriate. Mm-hmm. Uh, also, taking full advantage of the fact that he currently has no employer, <laughs> it's like the perfect time to do something yeah. like this. You know? Yeah, sort of. He's decloaked. He's about to recloak again, but here he is. And again, though, the cloak isn't the same because. It's open source stuff. So that's that's the beauty of these open source projects is that they are done out in the open and you can communicate about them. And a lot of conversation goes on about these. I mean, John Syracuse has been on that Swift mailing list since the beginning. And so he was able to say, you know, people argue about this and what do you think about that and all that because that, that, that conversation is happening out in the open. Yeah. L- Latna was in like a weird position, like a unique position at Apple anyway, right? 
Um, but yeah, it was a surprise to to hear him on the show because even then it's like, oh, wow. He's like in between these two jobs and they probably both don't want him talking about too much, but like up he pops. It was a great episode. You go check it out. Episode 205 of the Accent Track podcast. Um, and I have some follow-up suggested by listener Michael, which uh, is is related to ATP and their three-time upgrade win. Yes. Michael suggests that ATP become the Lifetime Achievement Award winner of the tech podcast for the upgradies as it goes forward. Because they've had three wins now, they could potentially continue winning the award forever. So to let other people maybe try and claim it, I think that ATP could become the Lifetime Achievement Award. And, you know, if they, if they want to, you know, they could maybe present the award to hmm. the, the, the later winning tech podcast. What do you think of that? What do you think idea. of Michael's suggestion? Yeah, I think this is exactly right. I had been thinking this myself, so I appreciate Michael suggesting it. And I think we'll put uh, ATP in the in the Upgrady Hall of Fame. Mm-hmm. The first entrant into the Upgrady Hall of Fame. Yes, and we'll retire it and uh, let somebody else have a chance at winning next year. Or this year. End of this year. 2017. 2017. Fourth annual? It's this year. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Wow. That's quite, that's crazy to think about. Um, a bit of follow up regarding Netflix and Apple TV. We spoke about this last week. You know, I was kind of complaining when we talk about the Apple TV that, that it seems like Apple couldn't even get a deal done with Netflix to enable their content in a TV app. It seems like a half deal has been done. Um, I saw this article on Apple Insider. Um, now, if you search for a movie or show inside of the TV app on the Apple TV or on iOS, it gives Netflix results now and it will play these results in the TV app as opposed to jumping you out i think it maybe gave the results before but you click them and it will take you to the netflix app now it will play that content within the tv app so you don't leave it and you're not jumping around from application to application however netflix titles will not appear in the recommended shows list and you cannot queue up netflix program programming either so Hmm. what this says to me is that like netflix do not want to be having their recommendation system like kind of usurped by apples yeah they believe in their system and they want their system to remain but i do wonder how they think this is going to help them if people are leaving their application because then people are not going to see the recommended content so well they're getting they're getting the data and i think they're feeling like if you want to get more you'll go it's an interesting decision i think Mm -hmm. they must feel like the upside of having this key app that is Apple's trying to place at the center of the Apple TV experience uh, that making their offerings there so if uh, you know so if you're looking for Luke Cage or something you're going to find it and not be frustrated that it's not in the main TV interface so uh, i think that i think that's okay um but but yeah, from their perspective, what they don't want is people to never use the Netflix app and never see... Because Netflix recommendations are entirely geared toward watching things on Netflix and promoting their own material, their own originals and all of that. And the TV app, the way Apple has designed it, is to be uh, you know, promoting material across all of the things you subscribe to. And so that gives you the opportunity to see something on HBO Go or Hulu instead of just as examples instead of netflix and if that's the case then you know this is the trade-off for all of these companies is they want they want complete control and this is this is the case where apple ironically is in the state of being uh trying to be the 
the the place where everything comes together and synthesizes all the different catalogs but everybody else really would rather live in a universe where they're the they're the only you know they're the only competitor there is no competitor right once you're in the netflix app they have you and everything you see is on netflix and hey that's a great place to be if you can get them there i think that the the challenge here for any provider like netflix seems to me to be that if there's enough critical mass, enough momentum behind the TV app, if it becomes useful enough that iOS users and Apple TV users really start to see it as the place where they find their content and watch their TV, then it becomes a, pr- a problem for Netflix because then Netflix is trying to, uh, you know, it is not being considered. It's not being shown. Mm-hmm. And then their promotion is... Uh, it's non-existent and that's bad for them. But is that really going to happen with the TV app? I'm kind of skeptical. I mean, they're going to need enough providers who are willing to take the chance at competing in kind of an open market. Uh, and that's the shame of this really is um, that I, I mean, frankly, first off, I have this on my TiVo now. My TiVo does this. My TiVo integrates Netflix content and I can add Netflix shows to my my season pass and they show up and it, it keeps track of what, what I've watched and what I haven't. And when I choose an episode, it goes to the Netflix app. Now, what doesn't happen is if I, if I play the next episode, I think it doesn't keep track of that because it's in the Netflix app and not the TiVo app anymore. So there's still some complexity here, but I will tell you it, it's great. But yeah, if you're Netflix and you think you're number one and everybody should just live in the Netflix universe, uh, I could see why you don't want to have to compete with whatever is on HBO and Hulu and Amazon Video. But so it's a it's like I see both sides of this. I think for consumers, clearly, it's better if everybody's in the TV app, even if we can complain a little bit about what the TV app's premise is and how it works and all of that. The idea that all of all of the Internet video that you pay for is in one place and you can manage it in one place is a good one for for users but i see why netflix would not like the idea and then of course amazon's not there on the apple tv at all so (laughs) yeah 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 at this point do you think that we're gonna see amazon video like i'm i've I've given up hope I, i don't well i can't make a prediction because i don't see why it hasn't happened right there is an ios app there is there is literally no reason why they couldn't do it. I, I they have the wherewithal to do it. I know it's not as simple as saying, well, let's turn this into an Apple TV app, but like they have the they have the will to put it on iOS. So clearly, I, you know, Amazon Video wants to be present on iOS because there are so many iPhones out there, especially right. That's I think their number one reason for doing it. I get it, and there aren't that many Apple TVs out there, and they make a device that is much better suited to consuming. Uh, Amazon Video than the Apple TV, which is the Fire TV, right? Which is theirs. And it's totally built around that, even though Amazon, you know, Netflix is on there, right? It's just iTunes that isn't on there. So uh, technically, there's no reason for them not to be there. And in fact, you can airplay to an Apple TV. It's just less convenient. But I, so so at this point, I don't really know because it's all about politics. Because I'm on the record on this show as saying I thought that they would be there last year sometime i thought they would finally do it because in the end what matter what should matter most to amazon is is having as many people as possible have access to their content and not uh selling fire tv sticks right 
in mm-hmm. in the end. But but I think you could you could argue that this is the same thing we were just talking about, which is Amazon would much rather you have a Fire TV stick where they control all the recommendations in the UI and can show you their stuff than an Apple TV where you have to go through Apple's recommendation engine and and like go away from it to the Amazon app mm-hmm. and then see it, right? They would much rather you be there. I get that, but at the same time, I don't know if that's uh, enough reason not to have it on an Apple TV too, just to get more of your customers watching your stuff. Yeah, it really feels like you're putting the money into the content. Just give it to people wherever they want it. You know, I think I feel like Netflix is the company that really understands that. You know, like there is, you know, the Netflix app is built into everything. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Netflix, well, Netflix knows. Netflix doesn't have a box. Although I was talking to somebody about this the other week that Roku, when it started, was kind of the Netflix box. That was its first yeah. iteration was it played Netflix and it was the, and it was kind of the official Netflix player box, they have the <laughs> which like is a- kind of... Did they have a button, or was it something else that they had on the Roku remotes? They had a button for a service that maybe went away or something. I don't yeah. Know. Oh, yeah. The the current ones do that. They have they have services that are that are dead that yeah. are on their on their remote controls that of new ones that they're Bad still idea. selling. But the Bad original idea. Netflix, original Roku, which I guess they would call a Roku One right now, was actually called the Roku Netflix Netflix Player. That's what it huh. was called. It was um, so. But Netflix basically doesn't have. Hardware, they don't care. They're not trying to sell you hardware. They just want to be everywhere because they think Netflix is where you want to be, right? That's that's what they believe. And they're willing to share space with competitors on the app level, but not like integrate their recommendations and stuff into and data into uh, somebody's uh, shared area. And uh, Amazon has taken a different approach, right? Because Amazon's making its own hardware. It's funny. I mean, Apple is the same way. Sort of in the sense that Apple is limiting its services to its own hardware, which Amazon's not doing, but that's what Apple's doing. Apple doesn't want you to be able to watch iTunes movies from uh, any device but the Apple TV. And that's just been, you know, that's, that's, that's just the way they, they've chosen to do it. Uh, Kevin asked why uh, you were so down on Bluetooth in cars that you didn't bother to use it in Hawaii. <laughs> yeah, this is a good question. Um, the I'm not down on Bluetooth in cars. I mean, I don't love Bluetooth in cars. I have a Bluetooth uh, radio in my car that I use to listen to music and podcasts when I'm driving my car, and it's finicky, but it works. One, you know, sometimes I have to wait like 20 seconds for it to finally kind of lock on and start playing the audio, but it does work, and that's what I use. Um, on a rental car, uh, two reasons. One is, you, you know, it's weird because you don't know where that car has been, right? It's mm-hmm, like, mm-hmm. who who has paired to that car? Uh, I don't know of any stories of things other than short of people like you having like address book syncing and things like that. But the idea that your phone is now connecting to this, this device, I, I, that makes me feel kind of weird. But honestly, the reason I don't even think consider pairing to bluetooth and rental cars is that i find the car setup experience so strange in different cars and hard to, it's just hard to figure out it's different in different cars um 
And then you end up with this kind of finicky Bluetooth situation anyway. So I should probably consider doing that. But when I've done that in the past, I've gotten frustrated. Some cars, also you start going to your destination. And then like my wife's driving and I'm there setting up the technology and all of that for us to get. I'm navigating and I'm plugging things in and getting chargers in and all that. And then I uh, try to pair the Bluetooth and it says, oh, no, you can only pair, pair uh, Bluetooth when, it, when the car is stopped. That, that's a frequent one. Because huh, okay. they don't want drivers pairing their pairing, Bluetooth yep, while they're driving, yep. which is fine. Although, I, I mean, I, w- I would question that scenario, but people are dumb and they do dumb things like pair Bluetooth when they're driving. Um, but at that point, you're out of luck. That's happened to me, too. So I don't know. It, it's probably a good reminder that I should at least consider that as an option. And, and I might have if my phone was completely out of battery and I wanted to, you know, I wanted to still listen to music. I might, uh, I would have obviously had to use the lightning port to charge my iPhone. And then I might have considered, well, I could go through Bluetooth, but, um, you know, the aux port is way easier, right? You plug it in and it works. And so that's, that's usually my number one choice. Okay. I mean, yeah, it's <laughs> the analog way of doing things. And sometimes mm-hmm. a little bit nicer. Um, and Stephen wrote in to say that, um, on his iPhone, um, using, I, I assume, uh, mail and the calendar app, uh, concert tickets and flights, etc. on his calendar. He doesn't need to use Google Calendar, which is something you mentioned last week about how right. Google services put sort of stuff in automatically for you. So I guess we should have expanded on it a little bit more that, yes, iCloud can do this. Like it, it, This was introduced in iOS 9, I believe, where there's some, some uh, AI smarts happening there where mm-hmm. um, mail slash calendar can recognize um, some booking receipts and things like that and suggest these things to go in your calendar. It also suggests like names and addresses and phone numbers for uh, like contacts. Sometimes you'll get a call from someone and it will say, hey, this could be this person because they've recognized it from your email, which is good stuff. Right. But in my experience, it doesn't recognize a lot of these. Like, So there are some companies that it works with and some that it doesn't that I've found. Like British Airways um, booking information always works, but Virgin Atlantic stuff isn't recognized. Um, I've found Expedia bookings. Sometimes, like if it's flights, it will get booked in, but if it's hotels, it doesn't. But then some third party, like some like direct hotel bookings, like when I booked my San Francisco hotel, it recognizes that. Like basically, I found that it works, but not 100% reliable. And at least from what I've heard from people like you and from Federico with Google stuff, it seems to always work. Yeah, one of the challenges here, and this is what we were trying to talk about, is that uh, Google has access to more data because more data is unencrypted and able to be processed by Google servers, and Apple doesn't do that. So um, this, I I think one of the questions here that I have is... I think this is working in mail, where mail is seeing these events in your mailbox. Yeah, and, and then it, then it, when you when you have the email open, it recommends it at the top, like above the subject, yeah. and it's like, hey, you could add this to a calendar. Or if you go to the calendar app and you have those emails in your inbox still, it recognizes them in like a little thing right. that's called the calendar inbox, which is uh, nice and confusing. But there you go. What I don't know is if Apple's doing any processing on mail that's on the iCloud, you know, iCloud mail, uh, you know, Mm -hmm. 
me.com, iCloud.com email addresses. Um, there's a doc, we'll put it in the show notes that uh, Apple has that says what's encrypted on Apple servers and what's not. And your mail is not because it's IMAP basically. And that means that Apple could actually be reading your, your mail and, uh, and doing what Google does, which is read the, read the mail, identify it as a, as a flight reservation and pop it on your iCloud calendar. And maybe they're even doing that. I do believe this is happening on device. Yeah, my guess is that it's doing what everything Apple does is doing, which is on the device, you know, Apple Mail knows that it's there and creates an invitation essentially mm-hmm. on uh, your calendar, uh, which is what Google does. But what Google does is on the server, it does it. And that does have the advantage of happening whether you're checking your mail or not. Yeah, so one <laughs> thing that I've found it. of trying to do this, because I like it, because otherwise I'm entering this stuff manually because I use yeah. Apple services for these right now. Like I use a, a iCloud email and an iCloud calendar currently for, for a lot of this stuff. Um, and, and I plan to continue using my iCloud email um, for the foreseeable future because it's been the email address that I've used for these things for like close to 15 years. Uh, but whenever I've done these things like using like you know using a third party mail client or whatever it doesn't recognize it in in Apple's calendar I have to have it downloaded in the inbox of Apple's mail app for these things to be recognized if they're going to be recognized at all so if you're all in on Apple's services and work in their way it can work but I think really for, for, for a lot of stuff having it all happen server side like Google can provide some uh a little bit more magic in the whole process, honestly, where it's just happening yeah. without you doing anything explicit. And our goal is not to not to sort of say that uh, boy, Apple is dumb and Google is great. I, I think I think the point, the larger point here, is one of the issues that happens with these two strategies is they have to build their stuff differently. Yep. And with Google, because. And everybody can say, well, this is why Google has liabilities, right? Google, because Google knows its servers know what's on my calendar, they can look at that and they can look at what's my, what's in my email because I am on Gmail and I have a Google calendar. But what it gives them is the ability to scan messages as they pop in my inbox, even if my devices are all off and I am in the woods somewhere, right? It will go, oh, that is a, although how I made the reservation in the woods is a question for later. But Your system uh, did it. The uh, bear did it for me. <laughs> um, the the um, the the calendar will just get that as a as a. I think they do it as a meeting invitation, so you can say no or yes or whatever. But it will pop it in there and say, you know, this is Southwest Airlines reservations, and we pop it in there. Apple doesn't, although Apple does have access if you're using. Um, iCloud mail to your mail. I don't think it's actually doing anything with it, but it, it does at least has access. It doesn't have access to your calendar data um, because it's all encrypted because that's Apple's whole thing, right? And so app, everything Apple tries to do is device side and it's just different and there are challenges with that. You just choose what your comfort level is really, I think. Yeah, but I, I do, I, it is great and it's great that Apple does have some of that in there now and it should keep working on that because that that is, when we're talking about intelligent assistance, I mean, this is one of those areas that is such a natural that you know your device or cloud service depending on how you've set it up should be smart enough to start doing things like looking at your mail and i know people will be like i don't want anybody looking at my mail it's like well yeah but if it's your device and it's doing the work for you um 
that's 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 to me an easy trade-off because that's not even google's things in the cloud looking at my stuff that is my iphone on my iphone looking at the stuff that's on my iphone but to have it be able to see what's coming in in the in mail and realize that i bought movie tickets or a plane reservation or whatever and knows what to do and put puts it on my calendar so that when i go to my calendar to put it in there it's already there that's pretty great that's that's pretty great that you could theoretically buy a ticket um, to a movie, let's say, and not ever look at the email. Maybe the email doesn't even, well, it gets filed or something, but you know, it comes to you, but you don't look at it and you forget about it. And then on the day you look at your calendar and it says, you've got, you've got movie tickets tonight. It should be able to do that. And that's cool. So uh, Apple just has to do all that stuff, sort of processing on the devices. And there are challenges there because you've got multiple devices. So which device does the processing? Do they all work the same? Do they all check the calendar to see that a dev- that a, uh, a, a an event has already been created, right? There's way more challenges to the way Apple does it. But this is the choice Apple has made to make it um, encrypted so that only your devices know about it. Today's episode is brought to you in part by our friends at Smile, and today I want to talk to you about the PDF Pen family of applications. With this suite of awesome apps, you'll be able to edit PDFs like a pro on all of your devices. PDF Pen is available for macOS and iOS, where on iOS it also joins the PDF Pen Scan Plus application as well. PDF Pen for macOS is the ultimate PDF editing tool, your Swiss army knife for tackling PDFs if you will. It also now includes touch bar support for all you fancy people rocking your super special MacBook Pros. And the PDF Pen for iPad and iPhone gives you the control of PDF editing on your mobile devices as well. With these awesome tools at your disposal, you'll be able to break the cycle of scanning, printing, signing, and faxing. You can embrace that paperless lifestyle and do away with this tediousness I can't imagine now actually getting an email. It's like, hey, can you sign this contract? And then I have to go and get like these two devices and like print. <laughs> and, and like, I can't even imagine it now because I've been using PDF Pen for so long. And PDF Pen is so smart that it can deal with a lot of different file formats. Like every now and then someone will send me a Microsoft Word document and they're like, can you sign this? Uh, and then I'm able to use PDF Pen to import the Microsoft Word document, sign it, and then export it back as a Microsoft Word document if that person needs as well. It's really, really powerful stuff. You can add text, graphics, or signatures to your PDFs, even make corrections. They've got everything you need. And PDF Pen Scan Plus for iOS gives you the power of OCR when you're away from your desk and scanner. So I use this when I buy things through my business account. Um, I'll take scans of the receipts. It does all of the recognition of everything. It, it works out what the receipt is in the picture and crops it all for me and then i can just upload it to dropbox to give it for my accountant later on in the year really like just uh, these tools i use them so much and they are so awesome to find out more about pdf pen and the pdf pen family of applications go to smilesoftware.com slash upgrade thank you so much to smile for their support of this show and relay fm so yesterday evening, as we record this, um, mm. Samsung held a press conference to finally unveil uh, and to expose, I guess, the reasons for their exploding Galaxy Note 7s. 
Um, so I'll put a link in the show notes to uh, Recode. Recode has a big explanation along with some diagrams that Samsung published, but uh, I'll give you kind of the cliff notes of it. Um, Samsung had 700 of their own team members testing 200,000 phones and an additional 30,000 batteries on top of that. They also brought in three outside companies to conduct tests and investigate along with them, and Samsung are saying that these findings were validated by these investigators. As we record, no journalists have been able to get these investigators is to give quotes that is just that's just a fact i'm not i'm not trying to wait that but that is a thing samsung is saying that there were two separate faults that occurred with the batteries the first fault in the first batch of phones was caused by a design flaw in the battery that made electrons prone to bend which in some cases led to a short circuit i have condensed that there is like a lot more of a scientific reason as to why that happened but if you want to go and read the recode article if you want to get that but basically there was these these batteries weren't designed very well um there was an issue with one of the the corners of them and they made them in some instances short circuit and you know catch fire these were the batteries that were involved in the first recall right so when samsung said stop using these we're bringing them back then there was a second fault. So all, so then the ones that happened after that, so like that one that happened on the plane, you know, there were three or four more that happened after I did the recall. These were caused by a welding defect that also led to short circuiting, and this was from a second battery supplier. Samsung believes that this issue was caused because of the tight timelines that they put on the battery manufacturer due to them needing to replace the record devices quickly. Samsung also said that if the, they wouldn't have put these tight timelines on, they believed that these batteries would have been fine and that they would have still been able to continue selling this device. But that kind of seems like a moot point, really. I mean, they put the timelines on. Samsung stresses that the design for the Note 7 that they created was not the issue, but it was due to the batteries that they sourced. Samsung now has an eight-step battery pro- testing process that had been beefed up in the wake of this. Um, I saw a tweet from somebody that was retweeted a couple of times by some journalists that I follow by uh, someone by the name of Avi Greengart, who kind of summed it up quite nicely. So is Samsung the unluckiest OEM ever, or is there something in its process that pushed multiple suppliers to deliver flawed components? I think this perfectly sums things up. I when I read this, I mean, I've been I was seeing some skepticism online about this report. I I believe that Samsung are being truthful with their findings. I don't think they're trying to cover anything up at this point. I think that would be a really stupid idea, right? To like have found something out that they're not talking about. But I do feel like there is an underlying cause to these mm-hmm. issues that an eight-step battery testing process will solve, but at the wrong end. Yeah, yeah, that that's the it's great that Samsung did all of this disclosure, but I think what has made some people uneasy is the fact that what they said is great news everybody. It turns out it's the battery's fault. And the first battery, there was this mistake that caused it to do this. And the second battery, there was this mistake that caused it to do this, but it was totally the battery's fault and not us, which may be true, but everybody kind of looks at that and says, well, boy, that's really unlucky, right? That you that you had this problem both times. Now, I think Samsung admitted that the second 
one, right? Like you said, the 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 second one, the reason that it failed is that they tried to ramp up production dramatically yep. in order yep. to get back get the ga- the Galaxy Note 7 back in action. And so it's not so much of a coincidence. It's actually it was a result of rushing to try and solve the problem that caused the second problem. Yeah, Samsung um, Electronics in America said basically that if they would have had more time, you know, like if they wouldn't have rushed right. it, if they would have always gone with battery supplier B, they feel that the Note 7 wouldn't have had this problem. Right. Well, right. I mean, it's an so easy they're... thing to say uh, because they were still blowing up. But like, I get the point, which is like they believed that these batteries were good and would have been good, but they rushed the production of them. And basically, like, there was just some abnormalities in them. Some of them didn't have correct insulation tape in them. Like, they were they were yeah. really really were... rushed, and there was a welding right. issue in them. Which is which is. It's weird because, I mean, I don't think Samsung, I didn't see the press conference. I don't think what Samsung's saying here is it's totally not our fault. But it is, it is somebody's fault, right, mm-hmm. that this w- these, pro- these batteries, after there had been a battery problem, new batteries were rushed into manufacturing and they were rushed so quickly that they, all, they had manufacturing defects, multiple kinds of manufacturing defects that caused some percentage of them to fail. Um, what struck me, I think the larger issue here is about trust, right? Because the Galaxy Note Seven, it's over, right? It's done. It's it's done. Other, it's all it's all over. But the announcements at airports, <laughs> those continue. <laughs> but it's done. The problem is what comes next. What happens with the Galaxy Note Eight? They say they're going to, you know, keep on keeping on. They're not getting rid of the name. They're just going to do Galaxy Note Eight. And I was struck by a reaction. Uh, there was a piece in the Wall Street Journal by Jeffrey Baker and or Jeffrey Fowler and Joanna Stern about this. And uh, you know what they said was its explanation sometimes left us scratching our heads. We don't have a clear sense on whether these tests will raise the bar for safety or just catch Samsung up to other smartphone makers. What Samsung is still missing is its Tylenol moment. And that's a reference to the Tylenol cyanide poisoning incident in the 80s. And what happened is Johnson & Johnson changed pill packaging, uh, made sealed pill containers, and basically create through kind of marketing and product design some reassurance that this product was going to be safe. Um, What's the equivalent of that for Samsung? I don't know. But what strikes me about that is that this is Samsung coming clean and saying we got it all figured out. And then when two fairly tech-savvy people, right? I mean, when Joanna Stern, who is as tech-savvy as they come, says, I kind of give them a, a grade of a C on this. It's like... You know what that's about? That's about not trusting Samsung, mm-hmm. about looking at their explanations and looking at what led to the decisions that led to both of these failures, especially the second one, honestly, where where they rushed basically like, <laughs> let's make more batteries as fast as we can and not be as concerned about if they fail, which caused them to fail again. Um and and extend that to consumers, right? I think that I think that is the number one challenge for Samsung right now is how do you communicate to people that you have addressed this. And if all they do is come out with a Note 8 and say, it's great, and uh, don't do a more clear job of communicating what they've done and kind of 
communicate that we know that the last one was a problem, which is tough, right? To have part of your your marketing message for a product be an apology for the previous mm-hmm. product. Nobody wants to do that. But if you're so proud that you just don't acknowledge it, I think you risk everything because I think people don't forget something like that. And so that's a challenge. And let's be honest, Samsung's marketing, at least I can say in the US, uh, you know, uh, Samsung's never been good at nuanced marketing. Their marketing has always been kind of weird. And I don't know whether that's just a cultural thing of uh, precepts of marketing in South Korea, not translating to the US market, or whether it's just the Samsung's weird and they do weird stuff. But their marketing in the US has always been a little bit strange and sometimes quite tone deaf. And this is a case where they really need to do this right, or they're going to do, you know, even... Well, permanent damage has been done, but but I do think like they will kill their products if they don't do this right because they this is not enough. And how do you make people feel like they can trust Samsung and that it's learned its lesson and that the new phones are safe? You 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 know there are lots of ways they could try to do that, including having a commitment, which is I think what the Wall Street Journal wanted: a commitment from Samsung to being basically the safest smartphone in existence, but. What the journal came away with is thinking um, maybe what they've done is raise their standards to everyone else's, <laughs> which is yeah. not 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 great. So Samsung were due to unveil the S8 at Mobile World Congress in February. They did confirm to the Wall Street Journal that they will delay this until after. The Wall Street Journal is expecting it to be uh, maybe March, April time. So the test is coming soon. Like it's a different line. Yeah. The S the it's the regular line rather than the big note line, but it's a new Samsung phone. And we will see within the next couple of months how Samsung is gonna pitch its marketing because the whole Samsung brand has been damaged here. Um and I'm interested to see what, what the S how the S eight is pitched. Um, and it seems like, from what they're kind of hinting at, that one of the reasons that they're delaying it is to do more safety checks on this this phone. So mm. that's we'll good. It's see. it's again, especially on an Apple centric podcast, it's very easy to read all of this discussion as Samsung bashing. But that's not. I, I think as we've done for the last year when we've been talking about this, I think it's more about like what do they what do you do? It's an interesting problem to solve and to see how they're going to approach it because. They are one of the giants of the tech industry, and they have a very successful product line. And when you have something this spectacularly bad happen to you, the question is, how do you get past it? And this is another step along the way, but I think the way that I read it, uh, the reactions to it, is sort of people feeling like they better not think that this is the last step. <laughs> because it's not good enough. Not, not yet. Dan Provost, uh, hosted Thoroughly Considered on this very network, and one of the guys behind Studio Neat published an interesting um, article which goes along with some of the rumors that we've been seeing and that we've been discussing at length on Connected recently about uh, a 10.5-inch iPad Pro coming in the spring um, to join the 12.9 in the iPad Pro lineup and potentially bump the 9.7 down a notch. So we then have uh, we have two new um, iPad Pros going 
from the spring onwards. Now, this has been the rumor, but Dan sat down and did some math. Um, and I'm, I'm going to try, Jason, to explain this. Uh, you can jump in if I don't do a good job. Okay, all right. When Apple introduced the 12.9-inch iPad Pro, Phil Schiller pointed out that the width of the 12.9-inch iPad Pro is the height of two 9.7-inch iPads stacked side by side. So what was that that time? The iPad Air. If you took two iPad Airs, put them next to each other, that's basically the the width of the 12.9-inch iPad Pro. A 12.9-inch iPad Pro can therefore run two full-sized iPad applications side by side in in, in portrait mode. So the screen is basically a two-for-one of the 9.7-inch iPad. So you take two regular iPads, put them side by side in portrait mode, you get a 12.9 inch iPad Pro. So if you take that leap, imagine them doing the same exercise, but with the iPad mini instead. It's got the same number of pixels as the full size iPad, they're just packed into a smaller display. Right. So if you made an iPad Pro that could run two iPad apps side by side at the iPad mini's resolution, instead of the, re- instead of the Air's resolution, you get 10.5 inches diagonally. So, depending on how small the bezels were around the display, a 10.5-inch iPad Pro could have roughly the same physical dimensions as the 9.7, but would have the same number of pixels, 2732 by 2048, as the 12.9-inch. So, you would be taking a 12.9-inch iPad Pro and effectively shrinking it down to fit inside of a 10.5-inch screen, which is also in the inverse, taking two iPad minis, putting them side by side, and stretching them up. Yeah, so the idea here is, if you think of the iPad uh, Air or iPad Pro 9.7 and the Mini, they have the same number of pixels, but crammed into a smaller space. Mm -hmm. So if you did that with the 12.9, the Mini version of the 12.9 would be a 10.5, 10.48 or something like that. And Dan did the math, bless him for that. Thank you for reading my article, which is much more, I think... I did the math last week. Let's not, right? Let's not revisit it. We did it. That's that's what it is. So the idea is it actually kind of works, right? It kind of makes sense. This rumor that we've had for a while that I think it was a 10 to 10.5 inch, like very vague. But with Dan's math, it's a 10.47 or whatever it is. It's very close to 10.5, but not quite there. Um, and it's just the, the same pixels as the iPad Pro 12.9 in a smaller uh, smaller uh, area. And that leads to, so I wrote this piece where I was trying to think what else would happen here. And like Dan says, Dan cut out, it's great. He cut out um, a piece of paper that's that size mm-hmm. <laughs> and laid it on the existing iPad uh, Pro 9.7 and it fits with very little bezel. And so like they could really shrink the bezels and have it be the same size. I think it's more likely that it would physically be a little bit bigger than the 9.7. But I think it's, I'm, I'm intrigued by this for a few reasons. Um, One is I love my 12.9 inch iPad pro, but it is big and heavy. And if I could get, but when I use the 9.7, I just think the screen's not big enough, right? I just keep thinking to myself, I go into split screen mode, especially I'm like, no, no, forget it. No, but a somewhat bigger screen a little bit bigger and all the pixels of the of the big iPad Pro might be a really nice combination the screen being a little bit bigger also means that something like the uh, although the keyboard might not be quite the size of a full size keyboard the software keyboard would be bigger than on the 
existing uh, 9.7 inch iPad Pro. And then the other thing I thought was accessories. One of the problems with the 12.9 iPad Pro is that it's hard to do accessories for it because it's so huge. And then you clip on a thing that's the same size as a keyboard or something, and it's huge. And you can do a full-size keyboard that doesn't have to be the length of the iPad Pro 12.9. There's extra space on it. And I started to think, I wonder if you had a 10.5-inch iPad Pro that was a little bit longer than the 9.7, if you could make a full-size keyboard that would be ex- sort of exactly the size. And and that would be great. That would be... Uh, I, I would buy that. <laughs> so I just I started to, to play it all around in my mind. Um, based on Dan's math, because that is the best explanation I've heard yet about why there would be a product in between. It's a little bit like astronomy, like finding, like discovering something new because there's something weird in the data and you're like, why would that be there? And then you start to think about, come up with a hypothesis about why it would be there. The 10.5 iPad Pro was always kind of like that, of like, why is this here? This is a strange result. And then Dan comes in and goes, here's my here's my hypothesis. It's the best hypothesis I've seen. So it's interesting to me. I mean, I, I really want this device, right? Like I I really want a different version of the 9.7 because I love that it's my favorite of the iPads but I really get kind of cramped with the software sometimes like I want two full-size apps side by side I don't want one iPad app one iPhone app which happens a lot of the time right when you're using the multitasking I really love that I can have like on the big one these two apps side by side right that's the whole idea is it's two full-size iPad apps side by side that's what unlocks like the real power right and so this would be two full-sized apps on on two iPad minis side by side, yeah. essentially, right? So it still works, but be a everything's smaller. just smaller. Yeah. Now, and I would really, really like that, but I want it to stay the same physical size and hopefully weight. But that's you, the nine point seven, yeah, that's the nine point seven. But you seem to want it that little bit bigger. Well, so I, I, I'm of two thoughts here. One is I think if I'm Apple. Well, part of it is if I'm still selling the nine point seven, it's a little bit weird to have two iPads of exactly the same size physically, but one has a screen that's bigger. Uh, See, I think it sounds weird unless you look at Apple's current product line. Well, hold on, though, because the other thing they could do is do a new 9.7 inch and 12.9 inch model that have much smaller bezels. So the the uh, 10.5 could be the size of the current 9.7, but the new 9.7 could be smaller. Yeah, I think... Oh, oh... Right, ah. so that's possible. My my reasoning, huh. and I, I I cop to it in the piece. I cop to it in the piece. My reasoning for this is literally, if it was a little bit bigger, that smart keyboard, the keys could be basically full size and accessories. Because you can't, mm-hmm. as we've seen with the existing nine point seven, you can't make a keyboard that is quite full sized on the nine point seven. But if you had it just a little bit wider, you could do it. I don't yeah. know if that's enough of a reason to do it. I really don't want three iPads, like three new iPads in the Pro line. I know, and yet this is this is where we are. It's possible that the ten, the ten point five is the new model that the nine point seven goes away or is just sold for cheaper I and that's it. I think it's cheaper and, and deprecated. And it's basically like we've taken the same iPad size and put a much larger, more high resolution display. Now the iPad Pro has the same resolution on either model 
and then the iPad, you know, the iPad Air or or the old 9.7 inch Pro kind of continues along. Um, that would make yes, I I agree with you. Three new iPad Pros does seem kind of redundant, and it does make me wonder if another thing that's happening here is these reports of a new version of the 9.7 are wrong because it's really like an iPad Air, you know, revision or something like that, where it's getting some of the features of the iPad Pro, but they're just going to call it the iPad Air. And because there's a new iPad Pro at that size and it's got the bigger screen, it's got the 10.5 screen. Yeah. One of the things that makes me hesitant to think that they would make it a bigger iPad is because the iPad's always been this size, right? Like I feel like that there is like this story around it, like being the perfect size physically, but now they've made the screen bigger. Right. Right. And, and also, you know, I think, I keep saying this, but I think the hope is that they show this design off as a way to show that there will be a new iPhone whenever that comes. Oh, sure. This is this is the the hint that if this scenario plays out, this is the hint that the you know reduced or no bezel iPhone is also coming. Yeah, I think so. Um, that's that's that would be the argument here. And the side bezel has already been getting smaller. Mm-hmm. Most. I mean, and they've got some some you know touch screen rejection stuff that they work on. If you do need to grab it by the sides, although I think generally the idea is that you grab it by the larger bezels that are at the top and the bottom, um, which is why I thought that it's possible that it gets no wider but a little bit taller or however you want. I mean, it depends on how you orient the directions, but you get me that the bezels mm-hmm. on the sides that are the narrow bezels might get smaller, but the bezels that are on the, the uh, top and bottom, like the, the where the home button is, might actually get a little bigger. Um, but they could also just keep it exactly the same dimensions as the, as the classic 9.7 if they wanted to. If they can get, again, if they can get that technology to work. I don't know how hard that, the smaller the bezel is, the harder it is to fit everything in there and fit the screen on there. But, um, I don't know. I, I, my piece last week about this was very much that I'm kind of warming to this as an idea. Dan, Dan doing the math made me feel like, okay, finally something makes sense here about yep. why this would exist. Yep. But, but yeah, I, I agree. The, there's a question of what happens to the nine seven and, and I have a hard time seeing it get updated and remaining exactly the same. If there's a 10.5, it's more likely that it either gets updated and smaller that they do the bezel reduction on it too. If, or that it goes away and there's just sort of a you know a, a new iPad Air that is that size and that's the differentiator between the Air and the Mini and the Pro is this Pro resolution that they've got, or that 10.5 has to be bigger than the 9.7. I don't think I don't think they can all be true. Yeah, I wonder if the iPad Pro goes the way of what iPad was it that was called the new iPad? Or remember when they they went was it like the iPad four? That was the iPad three. Three, and then it kind of just like they just kind of got rid of it, and it just wasn't went that away. wasn't that the iPad three, and it was the Retina iPad, but they just said it was the new iPad. Yeah, and then third and generation, then it had didn't have the dock, that the thirty pin, and then it got replaced by the fourth generation, which had which was called what I think it was maybe called the Air or something. I don't know, but yeah, there was like that weirdness. No, that was the that was that was also the iPad fourth generation. Yeah, I don't think it was even numbered. That was a weird time for the mm. iPad. <laughs> the new iPad. <laughs> yeah, it's the new iPad. Well, that's fine. I mean, they could they could do that. It was just yeah, it was weird. Uh, that was a weird time. I remember that because I was in. That was when I went to Mobile World Congress. So I remember being in huh. in, uh, Barcelona. in Barcelona, thinking mm-hmm. about the third generation new ipad the new ipad Ret- that that was the retina ipad yeah 
Yeah, so I have my fingers crossed for this. Um, I would be very excited about an iPad that looked and acted this way. That would make me very, very happy. Yeah, well, as somebody who I look at the, I mean, we were talking about this when we were both in Memphis and you were showing off your 9.7 inch with the keyboard and all mm-hmm. of that. And it's like, it's it's great because it's light. And my big iPad Pro is 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 big and heavy. But I have never been convinced to use the 9.7. Like, I, I just, it's it's not for the reasons that we've cited here. It, yep. It's just not going to do it. Something like this, I would give very serious consideration as my next iPad. Absolutely. Today's episode is also brought to you by Squarespace. Enter the offer code UPGRADE at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase. Make your next move with Squarespace. They let you easily create that website for that new idea, that next idea, that idea that's been rattling around in your brain with a unique domain, award-winning templates, and more. They have the whole thing, the whole package. Maybe you're looking to create a blog to talk about your rumors for the new iPad. Maybe you want to create an online store to sell accessories you've been working on, or maybe you want to create a portfolio of the artwork that you create upon it. Squarespace is the all-in-one platform that could let you do any or all of that. There's nothing to install, no patches to worry about, no upgrades needed. You don't have to worry about any of that stuff because Squarespace have got you covered. They have an award-winning 24-7 customer support team if you need any help. They let you quickly and easily grab a unique domain name and all of the award-winning templates that I mentioned are beautifully designed to let you show off your great ideas on any device. They're all responsive right out of the box. Squarespace plans start at just $12 a month, but you can start a free trial today with no credit card required by going to squarespace.com. When you decide to sign up, use the offer code UPGRADE at checkout to get 10% off your first purchase and show your support for this show thank you to squarespace for the continued support of upgrade and relay fm squarespace make your next move make your next website so uh last week apple updated their audio production applications more specifically they updated logic um on the mac and GarageBand or GarageBand uh on Uh. ios uh, received some heavy updates as well so uh, Logic got a new flatter user interface, um, but I guess more importantly, it gained touch bar support. Um, so there are timeline overviews and customizable shortcut buttons. Um, yep. And what I like the sound of, there are different banks of buttons. So if you hold like the Alt key or the or the Option key, I should say, uh, <laughs> who has a Microsoft keyboard? What? I do. Um, or the Command key, um, you'll get different uh, different. Shortcuts. I used the uh, Microsoft Sculpt ergonomic keyboard, so I looked down at my keyboard and it said Alt. I apologize. I apologize. <laughs> yeah, so the idea here is it, it is um, this is the thing that I, I kind of wanted to see, and, and I'm glad they did it. Yeah, there's a timeline view where you can see a little mini version of your timeline and where you're zoomed into, and you can slide it around and all that on the touch bar. But mm-hmm. the, the shortcut buttons view, you can customize all of them. You can say, I want this... You know, I want when I don't have a, a a modifier key put down, I want it to look exactly like this. And you can have it be, um, you can choose what commands go where, what the commands are, what the color of the button is. You can put in text of what you want the button to say. Uh, and you can do that for all of the different versions of modifier keys and all of that. So if you really want to go to town and reprogram it, it comes with, right, with buttons program, but you can reprogram everything. I tell you, man, this makes me want one so bad. I, I did, I programmed in so uh, to drop a marker 
Um, I put that in on a red button with the, uh, because it's an inside joke, with a German flag <laughs> on the oh, button. Jason. <laughs> so I can go, boom, chapter marker, and it uh, it just shows up, which is great. And, and and I put I had something else too, strip silence I think, and it had was that it? It was something where the description, the text that it was using for the button, because some of them come with an icon that you can use, and some of them just come with text, and it didn't make sense to me, so I just edited it and put in my own text that made more sense because you can fit a few letters on each button, and that that was when I saw the touch bar for the first time. That was my thought was this would be really great if you can really customize it in a, a complicated app like Logic or Final Cut. That's what I think people are going to want is to be able to make it their own and take their top features and put them out there. Now the UI for assigning these commands, like the UI for assigning any keyboard shortcut or menu item in, in logic, which it has to its credit is, you know, it's not my favorite, (laughs) but it, it does the job, you know, it, it, it does do the job and I, I appreciate that. So it's a nice example Here's a question for you. Yeah. Can you, with the keyboard shortcuts, only set one keyboard shortcut, or can you set like multiple keyboard shortcuts per button? Per touch bar button? Yeah. So, like for example, could I could I put on one button both shortcuts like Command F, Command I, or something, or is it just like each button is one shortcut? You see what I'm saying? No. Okay. So let's say I wanted one button to perform two actions, which are usually triggered by two different keyboard shortcuts. I don't think you have the ability to run macros, which okay. is basically what that is, mm-hmm. from the buttons. I didn't try that, but I don't think so. Okay. And the way it works is is not, you know, it's not doing it by keyboard shortcut. It's doing it by command in logic. So you actually have to find the name of the command. Uh. <laughs> And which it's got a search function, yeah. right? But but you're 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 because because the keyboard shortcuts are are um are also defined in that same interface. So yeah. I mean, I I know the shortcuts of things. I don't know what Apple calls them. You know, like a lot of the time. Uh, that was exactly my thought too. And actually, I I as cool as it was to see those keyboard shortcuts, I feel like I have learned enough about logic that I don't um. I don't need them because like I already wired strip silence to command or to control X, I think, or maybe it was even already wired to that. And I just do that now and I don't need to put that on a button. I think the value of this stuff is going to be for people who are learning that they're going to be able to provide those, um, those keys in context. But if you're somebody who uses a lot of, uh, a lot of commands in these apps and you can't remember the keyboard shortcuts for them, that's what these buttons are, are going to be good at. So I disagree to a point, um, which is from my own experience, because I, you know, I moved to a Wacom, right? And my Wacom tablet has six buttons on it that can be programmed. Mm -hmm. And I have programmed those six buttons to perform different actions in Logic. Now, I know what the keyboard shortcuts are for all of those things, but it's way quicker for, like, I have them programmed in such a way that I will very frequently hit button one, button two, button three, like, in succession. Mm. And it will do something that I frequently do. So, like, for example, it might do select all, cut, select all forward. Right? So, there are three different buttons that I have assigned. And I do those actions when I'm editing very, very frequently. So, like, having all of those things just, like, one, two, three is really nice. So, even on the touch bar, you could set it up. So, those three keyboard shortcuts, the keyboard shortcuts that you trigger in succession very often, are right next to each other. Like, again, it's like I know what they are. But it's way nicer to just go boom, 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 and they're all done. 
I like that, um, and it's worked for me very nicely. It's like I, I can do all these things yeah. on the keyboard. I do when I'm on my MacBook Pro, like or on my MacBook. But it's way nicer for me to have them all kind of lined up and ready to go. So yeah. I'm excited about that. I, I wish I could do it. Um, there are virtual <laughs> instruments. A lot more virtual instruments have been added to yeah. Logic. Um, so you can. This is on the Touch Bar. So the idea is there's a piano on the Touch Bar. That's, that you can have, crazy. or a drum, or a drum kit that you can have on the Touch Bar. Like so you crazy can in a good way. Yeah, play the play the piano um, <laughs> instead of the keyboard typing feature, which mm-hmm. which they have had. Now there's also a Touch Bar keyboard, basically, or drum kit. GarageBand for iOS has received updates, which are interesting. Um, targeted for like people that use Logic, but they want to use it on the go. Yeah, this is this is the way they described it to me because I did talk to some people at Apple about this. Is they used the example of the guy from Fallout Boy who like apparently was taking the tracks that they were recording for their album and then on his like iPhone or iPad he was singing the vocals that I believe there are. I think what I think what they said is there are some vocals on the Fallout Boy latest album that are from an iPad or an iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> which is kind of funny but the idea the larger point there is that a lot of musicians yeah they they are moving around they've got you know maybe they're on tour or whatever and they uh, an inspiration strikes and they want to work on it so they they wanted to as as and GarageBand is it for Apple on iOS. This is their high-end audio product because there is no logic for iOS. So they put in pro features um, in this release too because Apple said the goal of both of these releases, they try to sort of theme their releases, like what are we going to focus on for this wave? And this was sort of high-end audio production. So even GarageBand for iOS has sort of high-end audio production features, which you know, if you're just using it to noodle around, it might seem dumb, but they they have c- some compelling stories that they've got professional customers who use GarageBand uh, for iOS all the time. So GarageBand for iOS has 12 new mixing effects, a visual equalizer, a professional-grade compressor, and also has gained something called the Alchemy Synth Synthesizer from Logic, which is this very cool synthesizer. Uh, that yeah. has been added to iOS too. But the thing that is kind of mind-blowing to me is that you can now mix down a version of a Logic project and sync it via iCloud to become a GarageBand project, GarageBand project, to Hmm. use on iOS, and then anything added to the GarageBand file will then sync back to Logic via iCloud. That is really cool. Yeah, so what you can't do is go to you know take your iphone out with your logic project and edit the drum track because that's not what it's doing it is it is doing a bounce down a flattened version of what you've got in logic mm-hmm. but what you can do is add to it so that's the example of the singer wants to take the the uh the the track and do vocals on it on the go they can do that and oh, and if they want to add like an instrument track and put something in there uh like i'm going to add I'm I'm going to try a few different things with this bass line to see what I can do with it because there's no bass on the on the recording or whatever they can do that, um, and then that all syncs via iCloud. So when you go back to that Logic project on the Mac back at home base, those new tracks that you've created are added to the existing project, the existing multi-track project. Really cool. So there's yeah. some stuff there. Like I'm happy to see Apple continuing to push these applications it- forward. Logic, since it went to version 10 on the Mac, has released, they said, 15 updates. Um, so, it, you know, th- this here's something. It, we were kind of knocking Apple when we were talking about the report card 
about people's concerns about the the first party software, not the OS, but like Apple's apps. And this is an example where they are putting effort into the audio apps. And you know, GarageBand is based on the Logic code base. It's um, it's all you know, it's all part of one big base. So the people who are working on these things are all it's all interrelated, uh, which is how they can do stuff like this. But um, here's an example of a place where Apple is still investing in updates to their uh, their own professional apps. So the big thing about Logic, right, is all of the stuff that they're doing with the touch bar. Like that is like the big marquee feature here. So it seems that Apple is continuing to invest time and people into working on making the touch bar better, you know, like with their own applications, by making the software better, they make the touch bar better. So how long is it going to be until the touch bar breaks out of the MacBook Pro? Like, if this is a tool aimed at professionals, right, It's it debuts with the Pro for a reason, doesn't it make sense to make a version that desktop professionals could use as well? So you wrote a piece on Macworld about this, and a quote from you was that, I'd argue that for the touch bar to be taken seriously as a core part of the Mac experience, it needs to be on more Macs than just the MacBook Pro. Yeah, I think I think that's the the challenge here is the MacBook Pro is a great product for professionals. Two thirds of Apple's or three quarters somewhere in there of Apple's Mac sales are laptops, but a lot of those are going to be MacBook Airs and MacBooks. So you've got the MacBook Pro that has the Touch Bar. I feel like for for this to in the long run be a, a feature that people focus on, you need to at least give them the option of having it work on the desktop and you saw it even at the macbook pro with touch bar event you could see it because they like to stage these areas sort of like showing you all the great features of these products and the area that was running final cut on two 5k monitors or maybe three 5k monitors it was trying to show off those you know the the ability to do high resolution video out so they have the they have these big monitors and the, the MacBook Pro in a video workstation setup. But they still have the MacBook Pro laptop sitting on a table with its lid open. And the idea was you would use the trackpad and the uh, keyboard and the touch bar on the open laptop to drive those huge screens as well as the little laptop screen. And I'm sure people work like that. But I looked at that and thought, huh, that's weird. Like, what you're saying is we love the touch bar, but the only way you can get the touch bar is when the laptop is open. So even though you can connect your laptop to these enormous screens, you need to leave your laptop open and at the level where your hands are so that you can use the touch bar. Um, I don't know that, that I'm sure, like I said, I'm sure some people do that, but there are a lot of people who have, who, who are working on an iMac or maybe a Mac pro someday. Again, um, and uh, or they're using a MacBook Pro or MacBook or something like that docked. And ergonomically, I think having the laptop open is not necessarily the best experience for you. Um, so you maybe close the laptop, but if you close the laptop, you lose the touch bar. So, you know, in the end, I, I think the touch bar would be given a bit of a shot in the arm if Apple had some solution for people to use the touch bar who are not sitting in front of a MacBook Pro that is open. Again, from your piece, the most logical product for Apple to roll out is a Magic Keyboard 2 featuring the butterfly mechanism keyboard design used in the MacBook Pro topped by a touch bar. 
Yeah, that's the most logical. Um, I was I had a good t- uh, Twitter discussion with somebody who was doing the. They were running the math about the uh, battery use on the Apple Watch, which has a processor and an OLED screen, and they're trying to get sort of like how much battery does the Touch Bar use. I think the Touch Bar screen is bigger than the Apple Watch display, and so I I'm not entirely sure that I want to I, I want to map those things out. But but his argument was that if Apple can get uh, a day of battery life out of the Apple Watch, then uh, if you put a a touch bar and a magic keyboard, you could get a day or two. I, I would like to believe that they want to shoot for more than a day's charge on a keyboard, but they might think that that was enough that as we've seen, Apple makes those decisions sometimes, which is, you know, yeah, it's great if your keyboard lasts a week, but really you could plug it in once a day at the end of the day and then it would work fine the next day. So this does seem logical. Uh, and, and, with the new keyboard, I'm afraid, even though I love the Magic Keyboard, um, it certainly seems that Apple feels that they've nailed it with the MacBook Pro keyboard. And so it would seem most likely to me that that would be what a Magic Keyboard 2 would be. It would be essentially like sawing off that portion of the MacBook Pro, like that keyboard, that touch bar, and then, you know, and and the internals necessary to run the touch bar and a battery so that it can run for at least a day. This would make me sad. You know, as I uh, copped to earlier, I, I use a Microsoft keyboard, right? Like I use the sculpt yeah. ergonomic keyboard for ergonomic reasons. Um, and it would be sad to me if this product existed attached to a keyboard because I would really like a touch bar. But my hope would be you know, I would even be happy to have the thing plugged in all the time, you know, so I got the battery. But I I struggle to imagine Apple doing that. You, you literally want to buy a touch bar. That's all like I want, a touch, just a touch bar. A touch bar. bar, and you can put it wherever you want. Yeah, anywhere. Yeah. Yeah, I, there are some ergonomic problems with that because the heights of the tops of keyboards vary widely, right? Mm-hmm. So there there's some issues with, like, how high, how, how tall would they make that thing? And if it's if it's flat... Uh, if it's fairly flat, then do you need like a riser behind your keyboard? And there's there's lots of issues there. But I think you're right. I, I think the number one reason that that's not a product is that it just doesn't feel like an Apple product to say, here's an add-on widget, right? It's much more likely they'll say, we have this totally integrated thing and here it is. Um, I don't know. But you, you also uh, pose the idea of what if it was integrated into a Magic Trackpad? Yeah, it's a wacky idea, but uh, what I keep thinking is I already have a multi-touch surface from Apple on my keyboard tray. I already have one. It's the Magic Trackpad 2, right? I already have it. It's right there. And I think it's highly unlikely um, that this will happen anytime soon, but I just keep thinking like, if I'm Apple and I'm thinking about interesting ways to do multi-touch as an input device on the Mac... What if the multi-touch device that they already sell for the Mac externally, wirelessly, you know, what if some of it or all of it was a display or optionally a display or sometimes had a display that was visible, like on the touch bar, but on the Magic Trackpad? There are lots of issues because the Magic Trackpad is way narrower than the Magic Keyboard so you or, or the touch bar. So you couldn't have that long touch bar interface on it. So then now all of a sudden, if you did something like that, 
Do you have two different layouts for the touch bar? Uh, it, it gets it gets weird. How would you de- design something like that? I don't think there's reasonably a product here, and yet something in my mind just keeps turning over of like, yes, but it is a multi-touch surface, right? It is the most logical place I would for love it, something it like the touch bar. It more sense for a touch bar to be integrated into the trackpad because my my that hand is doing tapping and poking and, cl- you know, <laughs> that's where I would want it to be. But I agree, it would, it would be hard to put it there but you know I, I could imagine it being easier that way i i expect more people probably uh, say that i at least it'd be easier i think to get people to to go trackpad than to change their keyboard right i feel like people are maybe more more picky over their keyboard than they are their input mechanism yeah i mean and everybody varies some people are picky about the 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 input device the 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 pointer and some people are more picky about the keyboard but that's just it, you know Again, the most standard thing to do with the least overhead is to make a magic keyboard with a, a touch bar at the top of it. But again, and, and that go, it fits with the use case where you've got one hand on the trackpad on the uh, on the MacBook Pro and one hand on the touch bar, which they showed on stage, um, which is different than like one hand on the keyboard and one hand on the touch bar. Although you could do that too on the MacBook Pro, but I just you know. My way I use my Mac is I've got my left hand on the keyboard and my right hand is either on the keyboard or it is right next to the keyboard on that trackpad where I've got multi-touch gestures and all of that. You know, the other problem with a lot of this is that the track or the the um, touch bar works in in a part because it's not very far from the screen and on in a desktop the screen and the and the uh, control surfaces move apart, right? Your screen goes up yeah. Especially if you're following good ergonomics, because laptops aren't great with the ergonomics. Surprise. Uh, your screen should go up because it should be at your eye level, and your keyboard should go down at uh, you know right angle of your elbow, right? At which point, they are further apart, which means your eye line is that much split. So when you're looking down at your keys and your touch bar, you're now looking way further down. But at the same time, you know, I think you would argue that if you need to look at your keyboard now, you're still looking down at it and then back up at the screen. So the act of keyboard looking is still there. And if Apple's whole premise with the touch bar is I put a screen on your keyboard, then keyboard looking is required. So even though it might be a little bit harder and a little bit further apart, I'm not sure it's a I'm not sure it's a deal breaker. It might be less good or it might be different, but I'd still I still think people would rather have it than not so whether there's a magic keyboard two with touch bar and they keep selling the other magic keyboard or whether it's a separate standalone touch bar i you know i i hope they do something so it isn't just the macbook pro that gets this especially since it unlocks everything in all scenarios all their desktop systems all their laptop systems that have a you know that might run on an external monitor basically everything can get the touch bar if you buy the external touch bar but still in the back of my mind, I keep thinking, I'm not sure the keyboard is the right place for it. Cards on the table. Will we see yeah. this in 2017? Will the, will the touch bar break outside of the MacBook Pro? I think so. I think that some part of the new iMac and maybe other desktops, who knows, will be something like this. Do Apple make other desktops? Mm, they yeah. did. They might again. <laughs> we'll see. We'll see. But it's just, it would... Is it a must-have? No, absolutely. If I had to put money on it, yeah, I think I think maybe I would say more likely than not, only because 
they put all this effort into the touch bar to have it only be on the MacBook Pro. I don't like I would be shocked if a new MacBook had a touch bar, right? I mean, yeah, maybe yeah, it yeah. would, but that's a lot to pack into that MacBook. I feel like pros first, so like it comes with the, the next professional right. machines, you know, like alongside. So whether the next professional machine is a Mac Pro or it's just an iMac, regardless, having it for that seems to make sense to me. Um, I would say my wacky idea about a, a, a screen magic uh, trackpad, uh, although that feels like a very Apple product to me, I feel like that's not going to happen anytime oh, soon, if so ever. Beautiful, right? Like it would be all black, and then that the, you know maybe the little they would like light up when you. Oh, that would be so good. You know, but the number one reason I think it won't happen is if they were going to do that, wouldn't they have engineered the MacBook Pro to have the Touch Bar be in the trackpad? Yeah, yeah, they probably would have, and they didn't. <laughs> So this is where we are, and that, well, and it would give well, them it would give them parallelism, right? It would give them the same thing, which is it's part of the keyboard, it's in the function row, yeah. and and you know the thing is though there was that it was easier space wise to have it replace the keys, right? You know, but yeah. like with a yeah. magic trackpad, it can be as big as you want it to be. Yeah, and there are there are there are lots of challenges in getting a, the the screen. You know, I, I'm not saying just because it's a multi-touch surface, it doesn't necessarily mean it's the same kind of engineering that has to go into it versus something like the Touch Bar. Mm-hmm. But uh, but still, it is. You know, the Touch Bar has a similar um, uh, texture to the Magic Trackpad. I mean, they're they're cousins, right? And so I I do I do wonder about that. I will say, I think. I like the idea of a touch ID sensor on an external device. I think that's far more likely than a touch bar. Yeah, they've done it. You know, like the the iPhone can authenticate things on the Mac. Like they've exactly. worked out how to transmit that. Exactly. So I think uh, a touch ID sensor, maybe even on a Magic Trackpad, is is the most likely scenario there. So I'm with you. I think 2017, uh, we see the touch bar breakout somehow. Um, I'm just not sure what that implementation is yet. Yeah. All right. We should move into Ask Upgrade. We didn't do any last week, so we must do it this week. And Ask Upgrade this week is brought to you by our friends at Encapsula, the cloud service that makes your website faster and safer. Encapsula have a worldwide network that inspects every packet that comes and goes from your website, blocking attacks against your site whilst delivering your content to your customers faster. Every single day, websites of all shapes and sizes are attacked. Criminals use giant botnets to scrape website content. They try to break into databases and bring down sites with denial-of-service attacks. On the performance side, your visitors want your website to load quickly and reliably. They don't want to have things get in their way. They just want to come to your website and get things done. And if your site goes down or is unavailable, people are going to go somewhere else. Put simply, Encapsula prevents and solves this. They employ a powerful global network to filter out and block all the bad stuff, leaving your website and your customers unaffected. As a listener of this show, you can get one whole month of service for free. All you need to do is go to Encapsula.com slash upgrade. That's I-N-C-A-P-S-U-L-A dot com slash upgrade. This is where you can find out more and try your free month. Thank you so much to Encapsula for their support of this show and Relay FM. Luke wrote in with a conundrum. It will cost Luke 1,000 Australian dollars, which is about 750 US dollars, to replace the video card in a dead but specked out uh, mid-2011 iMac, 27-inch iMac. Should Luke do this or upgrade to a new iMac? 
Now, this is an interesting question, right? This is a machine that he's maybe gotten about five, six years use out of. Um, my feeling on this would be if you can afford it without it causing too much financial trouble, I would go new. Um, this is a machine that has, ha- has served a good life, but my feeling is it's failed you now. I would be concerned it would fail again in some other way. Um, that's just my look on these things. You know, like I would be concerned that I'd spend $1,000 now, but then in six months something else goes wrong and I need to, to pay again to have it. Uh, replaced in some way. So if you can afford it, Luke, I, I would say to to maybe to it's time to upgrade. Yeah, I mean, that's the name of the show, right? I, I agree. That's a lot of money to spend on a, <laughs> on, a, on, a on a five to six year old iMac. Mm-hmm. And, and the iMacs, you know, the new iMacs are priced uh, pretty well. I mean, you can get a if you wanted another twenty-seven, that's a that's going to be a five K iMac now, right? And that is, um, it's pretty good. That's pretty good. So I I, I guess you you know you got it. You got it exactly right. Which is if you can afford to go without for a little while or just replace it now, I think I think throwing another uh, seven hundred and fifty-five dollars at a six-year-old machine is not ideal um i mean look you're going to be spending about two grand for a new imac because you want to at least have the fusion drive in it right you, you really shouldn't get the one yeah. that has just the hard drive which continues to be a joke that exists yeah well i mean i i would say you'd be better off spending that money and a little bit more on a or maybe just that money on a 20 you know on a on a 25th what 2014 5k iMac yeah. that might be used like a refurb or yeah I mean there there are or or, or that somebody is uh, when the new iMacs come out maybe somebody buys a new one and their two year old two and a half year old one goes for sale or even a a pre-retina like a 2014 like I think you'd be better off spending that money on something else if at all possible even if it's a used system that is more recent than that because um it's already pretty old and it's just going to keep aging and and it hurts to think failing. of spending $750 and yeah and parts may still keep failing too so yeah Brent asked as a casual gamer I am am I crazy for thinking the Nintendo Switch is the most innovative console I've seen in a long time so Brent I will say whilst they're also good dogs you're not crazy. <laughs> uh, weird joke. I love I love that meme, the good dogs meme. Yeah. It's yeah. fantastic. If you don't know what I'm talking about, just just Google good dogs meme. You'll you'll find it. Um, I don't think you're crazy. I think that the Switch is very innovative, but you have to be open to that type of innovation. If you're looking for Nintendo to create a PlayStation 4 competitor, this is not that. But if you have had the dream, like I and Federico have had, of same console everywhere. Like, I've had this dream for as long as I've played video games. Then this is the innovation you're looking for. Basically, the Nintendo Switch is a super powerful handheld console that you can plug into the TV. That's what... It's not the other... I read a great piece on The Guardian about this that I'm going to find and put in the show notes um, that explains it that way, which I really loved. It's like people are thinking of it as a home console you can take on the go. 
it's more the other way around. It, it is a handheld console. It was a piece written by Kate Gray. It's in, it's in the show notes. Um, it is more like a handheld console that you can plug into the TV and continue your experience there. Like, it doesn't have great battery life. It can get anywhere between three to six hours, but it's USB-C. And when it's on the go, you can plug in external battery packs. Any USB-C cable will go with it. Like, that is right. a new Nintendo. Like, for years, Nintendo yeah. had their own weird proprietary uh, I ones. Just, I just bought my son a DS last year, and I had to find a DS charging cable. Doesn't come in the, the right. Yeah. It's ridiculous. Like, yeah. But they, 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 they're really changing some of the ways that they work. And, you know, it's got these controllers that you can snap off and you can have two people play with just the controls that it comes right. with. Like, it is doing a lot of really innovative stuff, but you've got to be open to that. Like, if you want a new Xbox One or a PlayStation 4, but it's made by Nintendo, this is not that. And honestly, I don't think they're ever going to make that. I, I, think that's, I think that's right. This is never going to be that. In fact, you could argue, I mean, the last two... Nintendo consoles have been a generation behind their competition on the uh, as a as a console, um, and that will probably continue. The difference is that this is not just a console; they're merging their you know handheld and console into one. It is no surprise that the people I know who are really really into console gaming were not impressed by the Switch, and that's fine because again, it is not a PS4 competitor. It's it it reminds me a little bit about people complaining about things Apple does because they're not following the rules of of uh, Windows PC makers, which always happened, and now it happens a little bit with smartphones too. It's like I can't believe that they're not just being like Dell was a classic, right? And it's like, well, Apple's not even remotely like Dell, so why would they be that? It's a little bit like that, where it's like it's Nintendo, they're going to be Nintendo, and what they're trying to do. I mean, that Nintendo Switch uh, announcement reminded me of Apple so much in the sense that Nintendo is relentlessly making these decisions that are like not what the industry decisions are. And some of them will flop and some of them will succeed, but that's, that's what they do. Right. And the switch is like that. It's a weird, it's a weird product, but I think it's got a lot of potential, especially the idea that you have one system and you can play it around the house. Like my son does this all the time where it's like he's playing the Xbox One and I want to watch a TV show and I'm like, I got to kick you off. Sorry, right? It's like with a with with this, again, it, it's not an Xbox One, but if he's playing something on the Nintendo Switch, he just picks it up out of the out of the dock and keeps playing it. And you can take it to on vacation or to a friend's house or whatever and it's your Nintendo that comes with you. Plus, there's the... Uh, anybody who brought computers over for a LAN party in the olden days will will know this, that like, plus now your your Nintendo Switch and your friend's Nintendo Switch, and all of a sudden you've got like multiple controllers and they will network with each other and you can have a bunch of people playing games together. And yep. that that is a actually a thing that I think will happen with this. So I think there's a lot that's cool about it as long as you're not, like you said, Mike, uh, you're not judging it by the PS4 and the Xbox One because it's not playing that game. And nope. I think, yeah, I think Nintendo's not going to ever play that game. Matt asked, Blue Snowball versus Blue Yeti. So Matt's asking for a microphone recommendation here. Out of the two, I would say Yeti, uh, but I know Jason's going to say do neither and buy something else. Yeah, that's that's it, which is the Yeti is by far the better microphone than the Snowball. I don't recommend the Snowball. I started with a Snowball, but don't, don't buy it. I think the best value, if you're in the US especially, because I know it's harder to get overseas, the best value is the Audio-Technica ATR2100 USB which sounds really good, it's really cheap, it's a USB microphone, 
buy a mic stand. I wrote an article on Six Colors about how you can get in a whole podcast studio for uh, less than $100. That's what I recommend. The the Yeti is great. The problem with the Yeti is it's big, and um, that makes it, not only is it heavy and big, but it's less compatible with mic stands and uh, pop filters and things like that. And, uh, you know, I loved, I used a Yeti for like three years and it's, it's great, but I think it's been surpassed. Something I've noticed recently, um, I've been sending the link that, you know, Marco's big microphone mega review to a bunch of people. Like I'm getting asked these questions a lot. Like what microphone should I buy? What microphone should I buy? And I, I really don't have a good, uh, recommendation but you know i send marco's review to people because he reviewed a bunch of them and you also get all the sound clips and stuff um yeah. it is it's just interesting to me that i'm getting a lot more of those questions it seems like people people want to start podcasts the atr 2100 is the cheapest microphone in marco's top five basically and it's in the top five i mean it's it's i guess it's not it's it's, it's number four and it's the cheapest in the top four. The mic at number five is cheaper, but you got to add a hundred dollar XLR interface. And the mm-hmm. the ATR twenty one hundred is a it does XLR if you want, but it is a USB mic, so you just plug it in to your computer with a USB cable. And um, like Marco says, amazing value for the money. So that's the one that I I I am now recommending. Um, and Brent also asked uh, a couple of questions, kind of podcast related. One, how often do you monitor download statistics? And two, why do you rarely, if ever, ask for iTunes reviews? So I make a note of my statistics or our statistics, all of Relay FM's uh, download numbers monthly, because so I have a graph to track our shows and kind of see how they go over the year. Mm-hmm. Um, so that's one time where I always do it. Sometimes an advertiser will ask, um, and I'll get the numbers that way, so I see them. Or other times, like when I'm uploading a show to the to the host, like I might just just check how the download numbers are. But I'm I used to be like obsessed with checking those numbers, but I'm I'm not so much anymore, honestly. Yeah, I don't I don't look except when I need to. Mm-hmm. When somebody like when uh, my ad network asks for the stats, I will look the stats up and put them in their little form that says here's how many downloads we had but i don't look i don't and i don't look at itunes reviews either i mean i just don't look because i know i know what i want to make i know what i want to do i'm i I was like this at idg too they would people would expect me to like know how many page views did pc world have last month i'm just like i don't know i could look it up for you they're like you don't know yeah you know what i don't obsess about that like we we used um we use some stats like the like some some live stats like Chartbeat of sort of like what stories were trending and for a news site that was useful in finding out like what people really cared about and what what uh, people were reading at at a time, but like the big you know daily, weekly, monthly stats, I felt like that was much more likely to distract me and confuse me than to inform me because mm-hmm. you can just start chasing flukes and you can start changing chasing sort of like bad stuff. If you do that and, you know, I kind of know, I kind of know what I want to do and, and those numbers get magnified, right? You, we do an episode that does 10,000 more than any of the episodes around there. And we might be like, oh, what did we talk about in that episode? We should totally do that. But it turns out that, you know, it almost certainly had nothing to do with the content of that episode, especially since the downloads happened before people listen, but it had to do with somebody mentioning us or somebody linking to us, or there was an, there was a hiccup in the network. And so people had, their clients had to re-download the file. I mean, there's so many reasons and you can get steered so far off course if you if you look at it that closely. So, you know, I try to look at it like 10 steps back 
and with a lot of perspective. And so I don't look very often. Um, and then why don't we ask for iTunes reviews? Um, I think it's mainly because most of the shows that we do, uh, iTunes tends to be one of the smaller traffic sources. Yeah. It it can be hard to tell exactly, but I would estimate that we have somewhere between 10 to 15% of our listeners that listen through iTunes. Um, and honestly, with the, with the kind of the focus of iTunes these days, the shows that they tend to focus on, I don't think that reviews are going to help us get the visibility that it used to. It used to be like having good reviews in iTunes was good for getting features and promotions, but the podcasting market and the landscape is very different now. Um, and the types of shows that tend to get featured on iTunes tend to be the more mass market shows, which is fine. Honestly, it doesn't, it doesn't really concern or, or affect us in a big way. Um, because the, the, the shows, the, the, our shows, a lot of our tech focus shows, people listen in the apps that they like to listen in. And there isn't a cons- like a consistent way to rate or review, you know, to make sense in those applications. You know, like we could say that, you know, like Marco has the starring thing. You could star us on Overcast. You could leave a review in iTunes. But really, the thing that we would love the most, if you ever want to do anything like this, is tweet about the show, tell friends about the show, recommend the show to people, something that they might want to listen to. That's probably going to have a bigger effect than any of, like, you know, leaving these reviews in these buckets within different applications. So if you do like enjoy the show, tell people about it because that's cool. And if you want to find our show notes for this week, head on over to relay.fm slash upgrade slash 125. Jason is online. He is at sixcolors.com and theincomparable.com. And you can find Jason. He is at jsnell on Twitter, J-S-N-E-L-L. I am at imike, I-M-Y-K-E. Thank you so much for listening, as always, and we'll be back next time. Thanks again to our sponsors, the fine folk over at Encapsular Smile and Squarespace. Say goodbye, Jason Snell. Bye, everybody.